Good morning, church. Our reading this morning comes from Genesis 16, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning. It's good to be with all of you this morning. It would be hard for me to overstate um, how privileged I have felt these past few months being given the opportunity to kind of walk alongside your church. I have grown to love your church, respected it from a distance for a long, long time, and then discovered that I, now that I've been given the opportunity to kind of walk alongside you closely, why that was true. Um, why I respected you from a distance. Um, I love what you're trying to do, how you're trying to follow God together, what your goals are, what your vision is, what your values are. And no church is perfect, and doing church in the 21st century has challenges. We've talked a little bit about that, but you're trying, and you're doing great things. And so one of the things that I always think is part of my role coming in as a consultant alongside a church is to hold the mirror up. I've tried to do that with the transition team. I, I want you to hear me say, I see God powerfully at work in your church. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to get to be a part of this congregation in the way that I am for a few months. I love the video that we just watched. I wondered for a second if I might see Clark Griswold there. We, you know, we kind of have that vibe going on a little bit. Um, I love travel stories. I don't know about you, but I've always loved travel stories. When I was a kid, and this will date me a little bit, we'll see if anybody in the room knows what I'm talking about. When I was a kid, my mom handed me a book written by a guy by the name of Peter Jenkins who wrote a book called Walk Across America. How many of you are old enough to remember the book Walk Across America? All right, see, the people with gray hair in their heads are the ones that remember that. It, I mean, so it kind of blew my mind. I, I was a voracious reader as a kid, and, you know, the whole idea of traveling all the way across the country, I mean, like, okay, fly on a plane, that makes sense, ride in a car if you have to, but this guy literally set out from New England, and he didn't just walk the shortest route across the country, he literally kind of walked up and down throughout the 50 United States and went from one place to another. And that, it just kind of blew my mind. And if I'm honest with you, it kind of set a hook in me that has, that has kind of stayed in me. Um, so later in life, I, I devoured Bill Bryson's Walk in the Woods. How many of you have read that book about, um, Bill Bryson's a very funny man that wrote a book about hiking the Appalachian Trail with no preparation whatsoever. So if you've never read it, it's really funny. A few years ago, some of you may have seen the movie or read the book uh, Wild, written by a woman named Cheryl Strayed. And then just recently, I literally just uh, finished a book uh, by a guy by the name of Peter Brand who wrote a book about uh, a sailing expedition that was designed to go all the way around the world. Loved that book as well. And then when I, when I was in my early 40s, I read a book by a guy named Donald Miller, who, among other things, wrote a book 
about riding his bike across the country. That book in particular got under my skin. I'm going to talk about it a little bit later and convinced me to take up cycling. So, so when I say I love travel books, I really love travel books. And I don't know if, if before you, this series you have thought of the book of Genesis in that way, but really that's what the book of Genesis is. It's a travel narrative. Genesis is written in a rather intriguing way. First two chapters of the book are all about perfection. God creates this perfect world and everything in it is exactly as it should be. The world is a place of harmony. It is a place of abundance. It is a place of rest. And most importantly, the most important thing about what happens in the first two, Genesis, first two chapters of Genesis is God is dwelling right there in the midst of it. The reason why it's perfect is because humanity and God are in perfect relationship. Chapter 3, everything changes. Humanity refuses to trust God. We take things into our own hands, and as a result, God's creation is warped. It's, it's broken, and all of the things that were true suddenly began to be impacted. Everything that could go wrong goes wrong. Arrogance, deceit, murder, debauchery, from the relationship between brothers all the way up to the unity of humanity. Even the natural order is out of whack. If you read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, or, or, the, or the Genesis 3 through 11, what you get is a picture of a world that's, that has fallen apart because of sin. But the good news is God is still God, and God's intentions for creation will still be carried out. And so God launches a plan to redeem the world, to put the world back together. And so what fantastic act of overwhelming might and power will Almighty God carry out to begin the work of rebuilding God's perfect world? This is what happens. And the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. Now, if you're paying attention to the details of the story, you might be a little bit surprised. If you're expecting God to put the world back together, maybe we're expecting a little bit of razzle, maybe some dazzle, a new continent popping up out of the sea where everything is exactly as it's supposed to be, maybe God turning off the sun to get our attention for a few days to kind of make certain that we're going to do what God tells us to do. And yet, when you get to Genesis 12, verse 4 of chapter 12 reads, So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with them. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So, Interstage left a 75-year-old Bedouin sheep herder and his 65-year-old wife, who, by the way, is barren. This is it. This is how God is going to put the world back together. A couple with their AARP membership cards. Interesting, isn't it? If you're looking for someone else to show up, someone stronger, younger, more promising, healthier, well, then you've got to keep looking because these two are God's chosen people. And as strange as that sounds, that's part of what makes this 
an adventure story. If somebody hadn't, if some God-fearing Jews hadn't written Abraham's story down, somebody else could have done it, and it might have read like a bestseller. Abraham's story and Sarai's story, or Abram and Sarai, they'll become to be known as Abram and Sarai, even in our text this morning, their story belongs to the pantheon of narratives that includes people who climb Mount Everest without oxygen tanks or cross the Sahara Desert on nothing other than camel's milk. Who sets out to build a new life in uncharted territory with a head full of gray hair on nothing but a calling from God and a promise of blessing? Historians and sociologists think that Canaan, the land that Abram was called to, was still practicing cannibalism then. Huh? (laughs) Who's going to accept that call at that stage of life? Abram and Sarai did. Which makes it not just a story, but an adventure story. But that was Genesis 12, years ago, back in Haran when they accepted that call. Now, in our text this morning, we are on the scene in Canaan. Our text this morning, 10 years have passed, and the power of that promise has likely started to fade for Abram, who would become Abraham, and also for his wife, Sarai, who would later become Sarah. It is all fine and good, like handy dandy to set off on an adventure when the destination looks like it might be wealth and comfort. But what happens when the blessing which God had promised them, the story that God had said they were going to be living into still hasn't come true, at least not as fully as they hoped or as fast as they wished for. Now, One important detail for us to remember is Abram's last name wasn't Gump, right? God's decision to bless Abram by giving him the land of Canaan was pure grace, but Abram and Sarai were also doing just fine before they ever left. Abram had built upon the family fortune. He didn't go into Canaan with nothing but as the head of a prosperous tribe of people. But people like that, people like Abram, are used to making things happen with effort by taking risks or taking charge. But the way the story goes in our text this morning is Abram suddenly finds himself confronted with a a scenario he can't control because he can't make his wife get pregnant by sheer force of will, by taking risks or taking charge. Neither could his wife Sarai. They had wanted to have a family. But they couldn't have one, at least not yet. I grew up thinking that family just happened until my wife and I tried to get pregnant and discovered that we had some factors that were going to make life difficult for us. We had a miscarriage, and then later we would lose our son, Micah, who was born 10 weeks premature. Now, that's a heavy detail to drop, right, when you barely know me, and I, and I get that. But I say that because I know there's probably some people in this room who aren't spiritualizing this text who are actually living that detail. And one of the things that I could do wrong if I'm not careful is I could create an impression in you that God is against effort, of taking risks and taking charge. There are times and places when that can actually be a good thing. 
If you live the circumstance that Abram and Sarai were living, then you know how painful that is. Alice and I would go on to get help, getting pregnant. And before I start talking about the mistakes that Abram and Sarai would make, I don't want you to hear me say that God is opposed to that. Medicine is a good thing. Science is a good thing. God isn't opposed to human effort. God is opposed to letting fear rob us of our faith. And what we think, as best we can interpret this text, is the, and what the writer of Genesis seems to make clear, is that Sarah and Abraham are acting out of fear, not out of faith. If you read the text closely, there's almost an echo in this story of Adam and Eve, with Sarai playing the part of Eve reaching out to grab what at this point God has put out of reach, and Abram playing the part of Adam going along without considering the possible consequences. Sarai gives her servant Hagar to, to Abram, which is problematic on a, a lot of levels. Now, realize that these stories are centuries old, and the Bible, which we think was probably, this portion of the Bible we think was probably written centuries after the actual story unfolded, like there's some complexity in the text, right? Like I was really excited when John asked me to preach, and then he said, oh, by the way, you get the polygamy story to preach on. (laughs) Super fun, thanks for that. I guess one good part of that is it reminds us in a hurry that the Bible is filled with mess, right? Complexity, real human challenges, mistakes, right? The Bible's not a book of fairy tales. It's a book of real people doing real things, sometimes really badly. At first, it seems like it, that they've solved their problem, right? Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. Hashtag blessed. But are they really? Blessed. Abram and Sarai were already wealthy before God blessed them, and Abram and Sarai remained blessed even when they couldn't get pregnant. Like, we have to remember that. Blessed are the meek, we are told, but Abram and Sarai were not being meek. Meek really is another word for, in in biblical terms, for letting God be in charge. And they weren't. So look what happens when they let their fear get in front of their faith. Suddenly, as the story goes, their household is in turmoil despite the arrival of this wonderful baby boy. Now, let's, let's be careful here. It's easy if we're not careful. Christians and Jews, because of who Hagar and Ishmael will come to be and the people that emerged out of that, they're associated, if you don't know, they're associated with Islam. The story as it gets told in that religious tradition is different. It's easy for us if we're not careful to read Hagar and Ishmael as the villains in this story. That's not what the writer of Genesis is saying. Ishmael is... A gift. And the text will go on a little bit later to confirm that for us. But what we do know is that the arrival of that gift causes dysfunction within this family. Anger, jealousy, 
Abram's passive acceptance of Sarah's or Sarai's mistreatment of Hagar, all that's in the story. And we have to ask ourselves the question, like, what exactly are they thinking? Where is the legendary faith that is accredited to Abraham? Like, surely, surely he must have had that God would select him as the father of God's new humanity. Surely he could just trust that, right, rather than manufacturing something. Where is the trust in God's protection and provision that he had exhibited moving from Haran? How much reliance on God's promises and God's power do Abram and Sarai show when things aren't going exactly like they thought they would go as fast as they thought they should? They weren't content to wait for the blessing, and so they take control. I've done that before. What about you? Maybe you're on top of the world right now. In this moment in your life, in this season in your life, financially, professionally. But a question that I think this text confronts us with, at least a little bit, is, is God in the midst of it? Blessing means God's involved in the midst of it. For the most part, the people at Valley Ranch Baptist Church are upper middle class people, qualified professionals, used to making things happen, a lot of zeros in your bank accounts, right? Even if you don't feel that way, you know, we have to remember that in the United States, we're among the wealthiest nations in the world, right? So you're the people sitting in this room, probably 95% of you are in the top 3% of all people in the world in terms of what you own and what you can control. There's always somebody wealthier, so it's easy to not see ourselves in that way. There's always somebody higher up the ladder, so it's not easy to always, we don't always see ourselves in that way. But the truth is, this is a room filled mainly with very accomplished people. And it's easy to just kind of make it happen, right? To do it because we can do it. Because we can make a plan and we can execute that plan. So one of the questions that I think that kind of sits in this text for us to wrestle with a little bit is, just because we can doesn't mean that we should. Is God in the midst of it? Or then again, maybe your spirit is aching. Maybe you're longing for something that keeps not happening. Something that you desperately want to be true. It's important for us to remember God's promises don't disappear when our bank accounts are empty, nor when someone we love walks away, nor when we can't get pregnant. I don't know what that story would be for you. One of the really wise and amazing human beings in our time is a man named Brennan Manning. He passed away a few years ago. Um, He taught a lot of people about grace and trust. If you want to read something simple and beautiful about grace, get his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. And if you want to see a beautiful, beautiful picture of faith, he's written a wonderful book called Ruthless Trust. And that book, Manning tells the story of a guy by the name of Tom Kavanaugh, who was a, and is, a brilliant Christian ethicist. He'd done, written a lot of amazing things, and he had inspired a lot of people, and yet he got to a stage in his life, kind of a crisis at one point in his life, and so he 
he, he sold everything and he quit everything and he packed up and he moved to Calcutta, India for a while and he worked in what is now called the House of the Dying, which was created by Mother Teresa. Now that's a pretty extreme thing to do to find yourself, right? Sell everything, quit everything, and go live in some faraway place doing really, really hard things. But Kevin I was used to being challenged, and he thought that going to Calcutta would help him find what he was looking for. And so on his first day there, he met Mother Teresa, and she asked him how she could pray for him. Mother, I have come here seeking clarity about my calling. Will you pray that God provides it? No. I mean, as you can imagine, he was a little surprised, taken off guard. Mother Teresa wasn't particularly kind or polite in that moment. Just a curt, short answer to the question. I will not pray for that. But, but Mother, why? Why won't you pray for that for me? I came here seeking clarity because clarity, Mother Teresa said, is the last thing that you are clinging to, and you must let go of it. But you always seem to have clarity, mother. No, she said, I have never had clarity. What I do have is trust. I will pray that you trust God. I read that story from time to time because I'm a person that loves clarity. A person that loves to make plans. To think ahead so that I can get ahead. So I can make the things happen that I think are supposed to happen. And sometimes those things are things that God is involved in. But sometimes it is really, really easy if we're not careful to get way out in front of God and expect God to just catch up. to bless what we want him to bless. I am praying that God will give me trust. And I'm not just praying that for myself. I've been praying that for all of you these past few months. It's not just challenging for individuals to trust. It can be challenging for churches to do the same thing. I think I maybe even shared this joke with you um, at the first congregational conversation. My standard joke is churches are bad at transitions. And, but as strange as it sounds, that's a good thing. Because if you're not bad at them, they're happening too often. Your previous pastor Larry was here for a long time, and that's a great and wonderful thing. But now you find yourself kind of in uncharted territory, right? Like what's going to happen? This is an in-between season for your church. And kind of collectively, you're trying to figure out together what that means. And it's not, by the way, it's not just about who your next pastor is. That, like, that's important. I don't, want to, I don't want to downplay that too much. But, but one of the things that we really try to challenge churches with, the question, the most important question that you should be asking right now is not who is our next pastor going to be, the most important question that you collectively need to be asking is, where is God trying to take us? I don't think it's an accident that God's plan to redeem the world, that God launches back there in Genesis 12 with this 
AARP member named Abraham, that God's plan to redeem the world is a travel story. It's a story about following. Not sitting still, not with plans already made and executed, but by just taking it one step at a time, making certain that we keep our eyes fixed on God. We sang about it, about following. And I would say to you as church, that's true for you in this moment too. The most important question that we need to be asking in this moment is not who is your next senior pastor, but where is God trying to take us? Because if we can figure that out together, then we have a really good idea of the kind of servant leader that this church might need to help this church go where God is trying to take this church. I will say, I think where you've been headed is amazing and beautiful. Um, Church in the 21st century is hard. I'd be lying if I told you otherwise. All of the institutional metrics for the church in America are on the decline. I don't think for a second that that means God is any less present in the church. I do think what it means is God's up to something that we should be paying attention to, a lesson that we need to learn. If you ask the people in our culture why they aren't coming to church, there's two two answers that tend to be the most common answer. One, their perception is that Christians are only in it for ourselves. The only reason we want them to come to church is so that we can regain our lost influence, right? We can go back to being at the center of the culture again. It's about numbers. Fill the building so that, you know, we feel good about ourselves. The other thing that they say is that the reason why they don't go to church is there's the perception is that we've got a political agenda that we want to force on them. Now, there's a lot that goes along with those two things. I don't have nearly enough time to unpack them this morning. But what I will say is this, that underneath all of that, underneath everything that's going on and the challenges of this moment is, there's always different ways to respond to challenges. Abram and Sarai responded in the moment out of their fear by trying to take over and take charge. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that the church could make, the church, capital C, could make in America in the 21st century is to letting our fear get in front of our faith. God's in charge. Doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. Doesn't mean it's always going to happen our timing. But God's in charge, and we can trust that. And when we trust that, when we live in that trust, it changes everything. We are able to, without fear, love our neighbors as ourselves because we believe God already has written the end of the story. We know how this is going to go. God is in charge. God wins. Love wins. That's how the story goes. And that's not just true for the church. I think it's true for individual congregations too. Like, I know your story well enough to know, like you're figuring out How do we do this challenging thing of reflecting the diversity of our community? That's not easy. I'd love to tell you there's some magic formula for doing it. There isn't. But I will also tell you, I think you as a church are doing pretty darn good at it. But if you get to moments where that creates turbulence and obstacles, don't think for a second 
that God's not in it. Don't be tempted to go, all right, let's forsake that plan and force our own. What I would say is if you believe God has called you to do it, keep at it and trust it. God is in it. This is a calling from God. Take that seriously and watch and see what God will do. Resist the temptation, everybody, the church, your church, to take matters into your own hands. A little later this morning, we're going to have the third congregational conversations. And of all three of these conversations, this is the one that can sound most like, quote, what do I want from our next pastor? But what I want to challenge you to do is to keep being indifferent to everything but the will of God. Not our will, God, but yours be done. That's what we're trying to make certain. that That's the place that we're trying to stay spiritually. Not what I want in our next pastor, but what do you want to do through us, God, and what kind of pastor can help us do that? Trust God because God is always trustworthy. I told you earlier that just because things are easy, it doesn't mean that we are being blessed. Or that when things are difficult, it doesn't mean that we aren't. God is a God of blessing because God is a God of love. And the good news is that that doesn't change even when we forget that and try to take matters into our own hands. We don't always act out of trust, but God is always trustworthy. There's a tendency for us to misread this text to see Ishmael only as a mistake. But if you have your Bibles, look at what at the angel says to Hagar when she's pregnant. If not, I'll quote it for you. I will increase your descendants. That's what she says to Hagar. I will increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. You are to name your son Ishmael because God has heard of your misery. That's literally what Ishmael means. God will hear. Now, if you keep reading the story, the promise isn't that life will be easy for Ishmael or Hagar, but that God will be with them, that God will be paying attention, that God notices, that God is with them. The promise isn't that life will be easy. The promise is God never forsakes us. Not just true for Ishmael and Hagar. Fast forward to chapter 17. And God tells Abram he has a new name. He will be Abraham, the father of many nations. God does that not because Abram has done things perfectly. But because God is capable of even taking our missteps and transforming them into blessings. And that's not just true for them, it's true for us, too. A few years ago, I was blessed to receive a sabbatical. Uh, a, a few weeks away, I was serving as pastor of the First Baptist Church of Wilmington, North Carolina. And I told you I had read that book by, um, about biking across the country. And... That hook had been set deeply in me, and so I decided that one of the things that I wanted to do on my sabbatical was not just read about those moments, but to live one. 
And so a friend and I decided that we were going to ride our bikes from San Francisco to Los Angeles down the Pacific Coast Highway, which is pretty amazing, as you can imagine. It's also one of the hardest things I've ever done. On our second to last day, we had, we looked, we had a hundred miles that we had to cover. Among some of the, the biggest elevation gains of the entire trip. It's going to be really, really hard. And because it was the second to last day, we were already really, really tired. Most of the time we would eat on our bikes. You just kind of, you just kind of keep your nutrition with you. But I got, I got to the halfway point of the day and I was beat. I mean, I was toast. And I was really, really scared. There was no way that I was going to make it to the end. And I asked my riding partner, we got to stop. I got to get some real food in me, and I'm and I gotta I gotta take stock here. And so we did, and we were in um, Santa Barbara, which is not a bad place for a pit stop, by the way. <laughs> Sitting <laughs> on a place out overlooking the water, and um, and I was just trying to stuff as much food into me as I could get that 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 would be good to for riding food and. And I, I was kind of beat down and broken about it, and, my, and I was kind of complaining about it and was worried about it because, you know, you don't want to not finish. You don't want to not be able to do it. And my riding partner looked at me, and, and I told him that I was afraid, and he said, Matt, afraid I wasn't going to finish. And he said, Matt, that's kind of the point, right? Like, if we, if we knew this was going to be easy, we probably wouldn't have chosen to do this. To a certain extent, it's the unknown. It's being out in the midst of what's difficult and hard that makes it a story that we're going to be telling for the rest of our lives. And so I got back on the bike. And I kept pedaling. And I made it. I got to the hotel, and I, I called my wife, and I, I started crying, if I'm honest with you. Because I wasn't sure I could do it. But with some inspiring words from a friend, and two cheeseburgers and two Cokes, <laughs> I, I got to the end. And that doesn't come close not even close to the story that you are in the midst of as an individual, as a church. A story that is going to be worth telling for years and years and years to come. That is what faith in God looks like. It is an adventure story. Not because of what we are capable of doing, because of what God makes possible. It's a story about following God wherever God wants to take it, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, and trusting that even when we are weak, even when we misstep, God is with us and still going to bless us. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for that. Thank you that it doesn't all depend on us, on our efforts, on our intelligence, even 
on our faithfulness, that you, that you are a God of grace, that you are a God of love, that you are a God who stays with us even when we try to take a shortcut. Help us to remember that and let the experience of that grace and that love, God, help us to grow our trust, to grow in faith, to keep following Jesus ever more closely. God, help us keep our eyes fixed on him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.